Everybody can hear me? Great. All right. We're trying a slightly different setup today. So hopefully this will make it even easier for me to hear you. And we're going to be interacting a little bit more today. So be ready for that. Last week, we learned about the birth of Jacob and Esau and how God's prophecy, how the older would serve the younger, was already coming to pass with Esau selling his birthright. Today, we're going to see that prophecy fulfilled in an even greater way as Jacob steals the blessing. Now, this is a very well-known section of scripture, which means you need to do what? You'll have to pay even closer attention. You think you know it well? That means you have to pay even closer attention because as they say, familiarity breeds contempt. It's because we think we know this story so well that we have to work harder to be careful and to pay attention as we study it. So I'm counting on you to do that. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we continue. Great God, we thank you for your word. It is the light unto our feet. So I pray that you'd help us to understand it. Help us to see what you are communicating. Help us to see how we can apply it. So God, we can be transformed by this word. I want to be able to explain it. Help me to communicate its proper impact. In Jesus' name, amen. And before we get to our main passage today, I'd like us to briefly examine something that takes place between where we were last week and where we are going to be today. So please take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis 26, and we'll be on page 26 if you're using the Pew Bible. We're looking at verses 6 to 11. As we read this, see if this situation sounds familiar. Genesis 26, verses 6 to 11. It says, So Isaac, oh, I should, I should premise, preface this. There's a famine that's taken place in the land of Canaan where Isaac is. And Isaac has decided to sojourn with his family in the Philistine area of Gerar. And this is what verse 6 says. So Isaac lives in Gerar. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she's my sister. But he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. It came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window, saw, and told Isaac was caressing his wife Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said I might die on account of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Okay. So a little bit of deja vu, right? Of what does this account remind you? You can answer. That's right, Abraham and Sarah. We saw this before. And how many times did this happen to Abraham and Sarah? Twice. Happened twice. Both times, like Isaac here, Abraham and Sarah lie, or they tell a half-truth. And what was the result for Abraham, what was the result of his lying in each of those two situations? You can answer again. What happened to Sarah? She was taken as wife by Pharaoh and then by other person named Abimelech. Now here, Rebecca is not taken as wife, but there's still the risk that someone might violate her. But what does God do in each situation? He preserves, he protects, he blesses the families. Now, is this because they lied? No. It is in spite of their lie. So here's the question. Did Abraham or Sarah, or did Isaac and Rebekah, need to lie to protect themselves? They didn't. They didn't. And how could they have known that they did not need to lie to protect themselves? Exactly. God's promise. He 
has given them a number of promises. One is that he would take care of them, he would protect them. So what did lying bring on them and others in their situation? Did it do anything good for them? It didn't do anything good. It just brought them needless risk and trouble. Now, this is important for us to think about because aren't there situations that we face that are similar? We also have the promise of God, if we are in Christ, we have the promise of God of protection and provision, perfect provision from God. But we're tested with circumstances that might lead us to doubt God's promises for us, and we're tempted to just provide for ourselves using sinful means, even lying. But what is the result for us when we do this? Is it any different? When we use sin to provide for ourselves rather than trusting God, we just subject ourselves to needless risk and trouble. Now, oftentimes, God still provides for us despite our sin. Not, not true that every time we sin to provide for ourselves that things just turn out terribly. Sometimes God provides for us even through our sin. But by using sin, by turning to sin as a way to provide for us, we just add trouble on top of what God was already going to do. So what is the lesson that we should learn? What would you say? Trust God, tell the truth, and for other situations that don't involve lying. You are not to turn to sin. We are not to turn to sin in order to provide for ourselves. But I'll say it again like this. Trust God. Wait for his promise. Don't try to obtain his promise by your own sinful methods and your own strength. Now, why do I bring this up? Because these concepts are going to be central to the other account, the main account that we're going to look at today. So now, take your Bibles, go to Genesis 27. Genesis 27, and we're going to look at the whole chapter. Big, long sections. So as we do this, we're going to look at this in parts. And then we'll come back and talk about the interpretation and application of, of this passage. But we start with verses 1 to 17. Now remember, this is familiar to us, so we need to pay even more attention. Verse 1 to 17, follow along as I read Genesis 27. Now it came about. When Isaac was old, and his eyes were too dim to see, that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son, he said to him, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold now, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver, your bow, and go out to the field, hunt game for me, and prepare a savory dish for me, such as I love, and bring it to me, that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Rebekah was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me, that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord, that is, the presence of Yahweh, before my death. Now therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me two choice young goats from me. I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father, that he may eat, so that he may bless you before his death. Jacob answered his mother, Rebekah, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel, and I will be as a deceiver in his sight. I'll bring upon myself a curse, not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Your curse be on me, son. Only obey my voice and go and get them for me. So he went, got them, brought them to his mother. His mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger. And she put the skins of the young goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. She also gave the savory food and the bread, which she had made to Jacob. All right, so this is our first section. Let's observe a little bit. 
Verse 1 says Isaac is old. His eyes are too dim to see. But have you ever considered how much time has actually gone by between the sale of the birthright and this episode? Now, consider, how old was Isaac when the twins were born? Do you remember? 60 years old, that's right. Then the boys grew up. So maybe 15, 30 years later, Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. Now, Genesis 26, 34, and 35, so the last two verses before the chapter we're reading now, they mention that Esau gets married at 40, and he gets married to two Hittite women. So how old would Isaac be when Esau is first married? They were born at 60. Esau gets married at 40, so Isaac must be 100. Very good. Now, is 100, does that make Isaac an old man and close to death? Here's something else interesting. In Genesis 35, 28, go forward a number, a number of chapters, it records the death of Isaac, and he dies at 180 years old. That's an impressive lifespan. But how old is he here? Now, I can't go through all the math. If you have the MacArthur Study Bible, it actually mentions the different verse references. But we combine the information we get about Jacob's lifespan and the birth of the twins, along with some information we get about Jacob's different points in his life and different points in Joseph's life, and we can actually calculate how old Isaac is in this episode. You know how old he is? 137. If Isaac's 137, how old are Jacob and Esau in this account? They're in their mid-70s, because you just subtract 60 from that. That would be when they were born. So 137 minus 60, 77. Now, that's kind of surprising, right? That's not the way we pictured this story. We pictured this account. Isaac is old. He still actually has a long time to live, but he's thinking he's close to death. His, his um, brother Ishmael actually died at 137, so he's probably thinking he's going to die soon. But his boys are not young men anymore. They've lived a fair amount of life. Decades have gone by since the things we've seen previously. Esau's married now. Jacob's not. Even into his 70s, he's not married. So despite God's promise, all this time has gone by, and the older is still not serving the younger. Now, it's true, Jacob has the official birthright, but that apparently hasn't changed Isaac's attitude. Isaac still intends to give the blessing, the Abrahamic blessing, to Esau, which is even more strange because Esau has gotten married to uh, women who are from the peoples of the land, which Abraham had forbid Isaac from doing. But Esau has done that. All this time has gone by. Isaac's attitude hasn't changed. So what now? Should Jacob and Rebekah make a move? Or should they just keep on waiting? Now, verse 2, as I mentioned, it mentions that Isaac thinks the day of his death might come at any time. So he wants to settle this issue of the blessing right now, just in case. So he tells Esau to go hunt, prepare a meal of delicious game some hunted animal meat. Bring it to Isaac so Isaac can give the blessing to Esau. There's that love of food again. Isaac really has a weakness for game. And it's caused him to favor Esau throughout Esau's life, Isaac favoring Esau. Now it will be the final act before Esau secures the blessing. But verse 5 says that Rebekah just happened to be listening when this conversation between Isaac and Esau was going on. So she hatches a plot to have Jacob blessed instead. Jacob will take advantage of his father's blindness, pretend to be Esau, and bring other meat to Isaac. This Isaac will eat, and the blessing will come to Jacob and not Esau. That's the plan. But you know, in verses 11 to 12, Jacob's a pretty clever guy. He realizes there's a potential problem. Jacob and Esau are so different that if Isaac touches Jacob, Isaac will realize what's up. He'll curse Jacob instead. Do note, Jacob's objection is not that deceiving his father would be unloving or sinful, or that this would be unloving to Esau, or that this would be evil before God. None of those things. Jacob is just concerned about the consequences of getting caught. Or at least that's what he expresses to his mother. But Rebecca's got the issue covered. 
says, don't worry about that. Just put on the best clothes that Esau has. I just happen to have those. Put on these rough and hairy goat skins. Put this on your neck and hands. And we'll be able to deceive Isaac. So here we go again. Food is going to be at the center of Jacob supplanting Esau a second time. If it works. But will it work? Now, many of you know the ending of this story, but you might not appreciate the drama of what plays out. Pretend you don't know the ending for a second. Because remember, Jacob didn't know the ending. He didn't know if this plan was going to work. And Rebecca, after all, taking quite the risk. So as we read this next section, note how many times Jacob's identity is tested by Isaac. So verses 18 to 27 Genesis 27, 18 to 27. Then he came to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Get up, please. Sit and eat of my game, that you may bless me. Isaac said to his son, How, was, how is it that you have it so quickly? And he said, because Yahweh, your God, caused it to happen to me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, Bring it to me. I will eat of my son's game that I may bless you. They brought it to him and he ate. He also brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Please come, co come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which Yahweh has blessed. All right, we'll stop there for a moment. How many times, if you notice, how many times is Jacob's identity tested? Three. Definitely three times, but even more. Five times. Five times they have the identity tested. Verses 18 and 19, Isaac asks, who are you? Jacob says, I'm Esau. Of course, what is that? That's a lie. And then in verse 20, he says, how'd you get the game so quickly? That's a little strange. Jacob says, oh, Yahweh, your God gave it to me. Interesting that he says your God here, not my God. But of course, this is not true either. He didn't get the game quickly. This is not game at all. This is another lie. Verses 21 to 22, we have the touch test. Let me feel whether you're really Esau. He lets him do that. Isaac's response must have really scared Jacob because he says, uh, the voice is the voice of Jacob. Must have, Jacob must have been sweating a little bit at that. He says, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Then in verse 24, we have a fourth test. He says, are you really my son Esau? Yes, him again. He says, yes, I am. So it's another lie. And then Isaac eats and drinks. Just when Jacob thinks he's in the clear, verse 26 Come and kiss me, my son. Why does Isaac ask for his son to come and kiss him? So he can smell him. This is not just, oh, you know, kiss me. I want to see your affection. This is another test. He wants to smell his son and it's fooled here too. Oh, because Esau's garments are from Jacob. And they smell like the open field. So I'm sure it was very tense for Jacob, but the deception works. Team Rebecca and Jacob, they pulled one over on the old man. A blessing is going to be given to Jacob. And let's hear what the blessing is. Now look at verses 28 and 29. He says, Now may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you. And nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you. And blessed be those who bless you. 
and note the different elements of this blessing. In verse 28, he says, May God prosper you and give you the best of all the land. The best land and the best that the land can produce. That's what's meant by those phrases, the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth. And then in verse 29, has two different blessings. First part, he says, May others serve you. May even your brother and your other relatives, whole nations, may they serve you. And then the second part of verse 29, he says, May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. Now, what's that phrase remind you of? Yeah, it goes back to the promise that God gave to Abraham, right? I will curse those who curse you. I will bless those who bless you. Now, Isaac thinks he's giving all these blessings to Esau. Which is interesting because God promised that it would be the older who served the younger. So he's directly going against what God promised. He's, he's actually trying to get everyone in subjection to Esau. But what's interesting is that in trying to secure this against God's will, what does Isaac actually accomplish? The opposite, right? He's tried so hard to make sure that Esau gets the blessing, but it's actually resulted in Esau getting no blessing, as we'll see in just a moment. And this all takes place not a moment too soon, because look at what happens next. Verses 30 to 40. Put up the next slide. It says, Now it came about, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father. Now Esau, his brother, came in from his hometown. Then he also made safe food, brought it to his father. He said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. Isaac, his father, said to him, Who are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. And Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me, so that I ate of all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. He said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O oh my father. And he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. And he said, He not rightly named Jacob, for he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. Behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? But Isaac replied to Esau, Behold, I have made him your master, and all his relatives I have given to him as servants, and with grain and new wine I have sustained him. Now as for you then, what can I do, my son? Esau said to his father, You have only one blessing, my father. Bless me, even me also, my father. So Esau lifted his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about, when you become restless, that you will break his yoke from your neck. We'll stop there for sure. Well, it's hard not to feel a little bad for Esau, right? He's too late. Isaac says there's no blessing left for Esau. Notice verse 33 says that Isaac trembled violently when he heard Esau identify himself. This is because Isaac realized what has happened. Jacob has stolen the blessing. All the things I tried to secure for Esau, I actually gave to Jacob. And he probably connected this with what God had foretold all those years ago. It had come to pass. Notice Isaac's statement at the end of verse 33. He says, yes, and he shall be blessed. It's not like Isaac's going to pull a mulligan, a do-over. He didn't think he uttered mere words over Jacob. He believed that what he prayed on Jacob's behalf would indeed come to pass. Can't change it. Can't alter it. It's going to happen. And of course, this caused Esau great 
anguish. He cries out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, verse 34 says. I'm sure Jacob probably could hear it. This is a loud, anguished cry. And in between verses 34 and 38, Esau speaks desperately and bitterly about Jacob, that heel clutch, that supplanter who's so true to his name. Notice Esau actually does care about his birth right now. And then verse 38, Esau lifted his voice and wept. Now, it is interesting that Isaac treats the blessing as exclusive. He knows he can't give the blessing to both sons. And like I said before, I think he was trying to give Esau everything. It wasn't like he's saying, all right, Esau, I'll give you some things, and I'll give Isaac some things. He was trying to give it all to Esau. But in so doing, he actually gave it all to Jacob. And what Isaac prophesies about Esau in verses 39 to 40 is pretty demoralizing. Verse 39, he says, and this is exact contrast to what he had prayed over Jacob. He says, you will not have the best of all the land, away from the dew of heaven, away from the best places. Verse 40, you will live by your sword. Your life is going to be tough, going to be violent, it's going to be filled with conflict, if not peace. In verse 40, you will serve your brother. There's no arguing with that. It's just as God promised. The one ray of comfort, you can call it a comfort, comes at the end when he says, when you become restless, you will break his yoke from your neck. Though your brother will dominate you, there will be times that you are able to shake off his authority. And as we mentioned last time, this came true prophetically for the descendants of Esau. Now, you got to wonder what Isaac think of Jacob after all of this. I mean, I'd be, I'd be a little upset with him. But we don't have to wonder what Esau thought of Jacob because we learn in the next verses. Let's finish off the chapter now, verses 41 to 46. It says, So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, Days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now, when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice and arrive. Flee to Haran, to my brother Laban. Stay with him a few days till your brother's fury subsides, till your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you did to him. And I will send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? Rebekah said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth, that is, the Hittites. If Jacob takes, a, Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Kind of a funny way to end the chapter, but we'll see why in just a second. So let's observe this last little bit. Jacob and Rebekah's little stratagem worked. They stole the blessing from Esau, but they didn't really count on the aftermath. Now Esau is planning to kill Jacob. What good is a birthright and a blessing if you're dead? Don't worry. Mama's got another plan. Jacob, run away. Stay with Mom's brother Laban until Esau cools down. Don't just be for a little while, and Mama will send for you. And Rebecca has a convenient excuse for sending Jacob away. You see this in verse 46, though it's not quite explicit. What is the excuse for sending Jacob away? That's right, it's to find a wife. These daughters of Heth, that is Esau's wives, oh, they're so annoying to me. Actually, they were quite a grief to Jacob. I mean, to Isaac and Rebecca. This is noted previously, a section we didn't look at. It says, oh, the, I can't stand these Hittite wives. We need to get Jacob a wife who's not from the Hittites. Which means we got to send them away. Right? So that's the convenient excuse. But now, consider all this aftermath. Has this deception turned out pleasantly for anyone? No. Isaac, Probably feels betrayed. Feels bad for his son Esau. Esau has murderous hatred for Jacob. Jacob has to run away. And Rebecca has to be deprived of her favorite son. In fact, it's interesting. 
Rebecca won't really be mentioned in the narrative after this. Jacob's going to be away a long time. Likely that she dies before he comes back. And this is the last time she'll ever see. So is this deception really a good idea after all? Considering all these consequences? And that's a lot of text. That's a lot of observation. These are important. Let's now proceed to the second step and consider some interpretation questions. Got a number of them here. First and foremost, what is so special about Isaac's blessing? I mean, it's a blessing. I mean, what's the big deal? Now, we don't live in a world where blessings and curses are taken very seriously. I think part of the reason we this is, or part of the reason we feel this way, at least if we're a Christian, is that we know only God can truly bless the curse. He's the one who who manages that. We don't worry if someone wishes bad on us. I mean, you curse me. It's not going to alight, as one of the Psalms says. God's the one in control. Or if you bless me, well, I'm not overly excited because I don't know if your blessing really has much, much to it. But blessings and cursings were taken way more seriously back in the ancient days. But there's more to it than that. Because remember, there's something special about the patriarch. They are the recipients of the promise of blessing through Abraham. And those blessings were quite tremendous. Protection, honor, multiplied descendants, prosperity. And yet, these blessings were not given to every descendant of Abraham. And we've seen this already. Ishmael was excluded from this blessing. And it was given to Isaac instead. And so with Isaac's sons, either Jacob or Esau could be excluded from this very special blessing, the Abrahamic blessing. Thus, the pronouncement of blessing from Isaac, it's really a declaration of onto whom the blessing of God from Abraham would pass. And this is, explains why some of the language of the Abrahamic blessing actually appears in Isaac's blessing. Those who curse you will be cursed, and those who bless you will be blessed. This is not any old blessing that Isaac is passing now. This is the Abrahamic blessing. This is a very important blessing. And then there's one other factor for us to consider. And that is, in the earliest times of the scriptures, the patriarchs and certain other holy men, they functioned as prophets, especially as they got closer to death. For example, interesting, you go back to Noah. What's one of the last things we hear about Noah? He prophesies concerning his descendants. In particular, one of Ham's descendants, Cain. He pronounces a curse from God on Canaan. Or Abraham, before he dies, and he commissions his servant, he foretells what God's going to do for his servant and for Isaac. And later, Jacob, as he approaches death, what does he do? He prophesies about the fate of his 12 sons. There's actually a little bit of a messianic prophecy in there as well. And even when we get to Moses and Joshua, right before they die, they prophesy regarding what God's going to do to the people of Israel. So there's this pattern of these ancient patriarchs, these ancient holy men. They are able to speak about the future. They don't just declare their wishes when they do this. They actually utter words from God. They speak for God. What the patriarch says will come to pass. So then this blessing from Isaac, this pronouncement from Isaac, blessing of the future, all that kind of thing, this is a super big deal. I mean, yes, the birthright, the official birthright thing, that's great, but this is what really matters. The passing of the blessing from Isaac to his descendants. So you can understand that Rebecca and Jacob, they feel some impetus to get in on this blessing, to switch Isaac's intention. But we have to ask the question, was what they did wrong? Did they sin in trying to obtain the blessing in this way? And what's the answer? Of course they did. Of course they did. It doesn't matter if they were trying to fulfill God's will. It doesn't matter if they had the prophecy from God to back them up. The ends do not justify the means. What they did here was evil. 
They lie, and lying is the opposite of who God is. And they acted extremely unloving toward Isaac. I mean, would, would anyone want this to happen to them? To be deceived by their own son like this? They acted unloving toward Esau. They stole the blessing from him. This was evil. This was sin. And unsurprisingly, it brought a whole bunch of consequences. That's what sin does. Now, one could say that Rebecca and Jacob simply did what was necessary to accomplish God's will. There was no way for them to get this blessing on Jacob unless they did this deception. But is that really true? What could they have done instead? Yes, uh, is that Dwayne in the back? Or who is that? Who's raising your hand? Uh, hey, Dwayne. Hmm. That's very interesting, Dwayne. I didn't think about that before. But just repeat what you said briefly. The promise about the older serving the younger is specifically given to Rebecca. Don't know if Isaac was there. We don't know if she told him later. So it's possible that Isaac was ignorant. And that's why he keeps on trying to favor Esau. Maybe. But it does seem very strange that she would never tell him. Or that if she did tell him that he would not listen to that. Interesting what you brought up about Hebrews in uh, saying that Isaac blessed and prophesied over his sons by faith. Um, so that, as you, su as you suggested, that could point to that he was ignorant and he was just trying to do what, what was right before God. Very interesting. But I think the main thing of what you said of that, they, <laughs> Rebecca and Isaac should have just talked about it instead of going through this whole this whole route of deception. They could say, well, maybe they did talk about it and he didn't listen. Well, we don't know. But the main, the main point is God doesn't need sin to bring about his promises. Okay, maybe they did talk and Isaac was intent on blessing Esau. God could have still brought about the blessing on Jacob in another way. I mean, if he's able to provide for a son to Abraham when the mother is past childbearing, if he's able to do that without resorting to Hagar, and he's able to bring the blessing on Jacob without Rebecca and Jacob resorting to sin. Now, Dwayne, you want to say something else? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's true. <laughs> Esau could have died and then the, the blessing would have come to Jacob by default. Uh, of course, then there's the prophecy of the older servant, the younger. So we, we do need descendants from Esau. Maybe he already had them. He would have already had them. Roy, did you want to say something, too?
Yeah, it's good. Are we going to say something else? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, just to briefly recap what you said, we're seeing the results of parental favoritism. It's resulting in severe problems in the family. Also seeing the result of a lack of communication, unloving communication. I mean, even if they hadn't talked in the past, Rebecca and Jacob could go to Isaac right now and say, hey, we overheard that you want to do this for Esau, but I, as Jacob, I have obtained the birthright, or this is the prophecy that God foretold. I think you should seek the Lord about this. But again, whether Isaac would yield to that or already knew about that, we don't know. The only thing is God is able to provide without sin. And because they used a sinful way, they brought a lot of trouble on themselves. They brought a lot of strife into the family and a lot of painful consequences. And this is, I think, one of the main points that we need to see today. This is always the way with sin. When you try to obtain God's promise by utilizing sin, you only make trouble for yourself. You only bring pain on yourself and pain for others. Now, I think of, you talk about communication. I mean, this is still true in families today, right? You, get, you have a family member who you want to do a certain thing, but you don't want to confront them about it, so you just try and manipulate them. Or you, rather than talking through the issue, you just kind of browbeat them or something like that. You say, oh, this will be the way to get them to follow God or to get them to do what's right. That's not the way to do it. You don't use sin to try and get your family member in line. You have to do maybe the harder thing is to just talk. But whatever you do, God has promised that he'll provide. God, will, God has promised that he's the one in control. He doesn't need your sin. As in this case, God is perfectly able to accomplish his perfect will without your sin. Now, here's the kind of interesting part, though. Another interesting part. <clears throat> yeah, I'll bread at that question now. God could have done without this. He could have accomplished his will in a different way, but he didn't. This actually, all these things that played out, it proceeded as God ordained. He ordained that the family would do what they did. Now, he didn't force them to sin. He's not responsible for their sin. Scripture is very, very clear about that. He never sin He's in complete control. So we might ask, well, why did you choose to do it this way, God? Why not prevent their sin? Why not make the prophecy clear to Isaac? Why not change Isaac's heart? Why not just make Jacob the firstborn? And we could skip all this conflict. Why specifically did things turn out this way? Well, only God knows the answer to that fully. Though his reasons, as always, as is clear from the other scriptures that describe its character, they are wise, they are just, and they are good. But I think one of the things, one of the reasons why God had things play out this way, not absolving anyone of responsibility, their choices were still uncoerced choices. I think one of the things that God, would, God was doing in all of this is that he was teaching. He was teaching Isaac. He was teaching his family. He was teaching Israel, who would come later, and he's teaching us. God is in control. You cannot go against God and win. Even when you do, you're going to say, I will not do what God wants me to do. I'm opposed to his plan. Even when you go against God, you end up accomplishing God's will. You can't thwart God. He's sovereign. He's faithful. To his word, what he declares will come to pass. So the choice for us is, do we get on board with that and experience blessing? Or do we vainly oppose him and just bring trouble on ourselves? Even if we never repent, everlasting destruction. I said last time, I think this is such an important concept for us as Christians to realize because we can take God's sovereignty, we can take God's goodness, and use that as an excuse for sin. But doing so is testing the Lord. We are forbidden in Scripture from doing that. Do not test the Lord. Those who do, they suffer the consequences. Don't say to yourself, as, as Paul says in Romans 3, somewhere, 
slandering Christians are saying, let us sin that good may come of it. We'll be accomplishing God's sovereign plan. Don't say that. Because you'll experience the consequences of opposing what God told you to do. And the good he may accomplish in rebellion is actually, it might be, he'll use you as an example of others, not to test the Lord. He'll let you suffer the consequences, even the eternal consequences, because it's going to be an example to others. Don't test the Lord. Don't use his sovereignty. Don't use his goodness as an excuse to sin. And which would you rather be? Would you rather be an example of obedience, blessing, or an example of disobedience and curse on the curse of God? But bringing in God's sovereignty, we're forced to ask the question that we did last time. How is this fair? How is what happened in this passage fair? I mean, why should Jacob get the Abrahamic blessing when he's a sinful deceiver and Esau gets nothing when he did nothing wrong? Part of the answer is, despite Esau's pitiable tears here, he is not innocent. He is not deserved of the blessing. We see a little bit in Genesis, but the writer of Hebrews makes sure we don't, we don't miss it. But Esau was a godless man. He was a man's enslaved appetite. He treated God's blessing and birthright with contempt. He's not an innocent person. And despite his many tears, Hebrews says he never found a place for repentance. Even the wrong things that he did, he never turned from. So he's not deserving of the blessing, but is Jacob much better? As we said last time, he's not. Jacob is a recipient of God's undeserved favor, God's grace. Just as Abraham was, just as Isaac was, just as we are if we know Jesus. When it comes to salvation and blessing, it is not a matter of fairness, because fairness is that no one is no one is blessed. We've all sinned. We've all earned for ourselves death from God, not just physical death, but everlasting death. But in undeserved kindness, God has had mercy on some, mercy on sinners. Mercy on those who are saved in Jesus. And God is willing to show mercy to more if they repent and if they believe in the only substitute, the only Savior, Jesus Christ. So what we're seeing again here with Jacob is God's undeserved grace. Jacob is a sinner, but God is showing undeserved favor on him. And he doesn't show it to Esau. God has the right to do that. Esau's not deserving of it. This is God's great and mercy at work. And God's not done with Jacob. God will work on him just as he works on each one of us. He works on everyone he chooses. Throughout his whole life, Jacob is going to be a grasper. He is the heel clutcher. He is always working, scheming, fighting, trying to secure for himself a future and blessing. And Jacob will appear to succeed due to his own efforts. But God will show Jacob, it's not really you who's in control. It's not really you who's obtaining this success. I'm the one who's granting it. I feel like we see a good metaphor of this when Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord, when he wrestles with God. Jacob wins. But why? How could he win against God? Because God let him. Jacob is going to win against Esau and against others. But why? Because Jacob was so crafty? Because he was so strong and so smart? No, it's because God let him. It's because God brought him about. And God's going to show Jacob by giving him trouble when Jacob is being self-reliant. But Jacob's not really the one in control, not really the one with the power. He's going to grow Jacob. He's going to build faith in Jacob. He's going to show Jacob, stop grasping. Stop turning to your own wisdom, your own strength, and your own skill to get what you think what you need. Obey me. Trust me. Let me give you what you keep striving for. You're grasping after it. I'll just give it to you. I want you to learn to stop grasping at it. 
Stop striving. Let me do it my way. Beyond me. Now, this will be a hard lesson for Jacob to learn. When he appears before Pharaoh, much later in Genesis, Genesis 47, 9, he says, few and unpleasant have been the days of my life. Jacob is so unhappy living this self-reliant way. But he will eventually learn. But will we learn? Will we learn to stop grasping our own sinful efforts and simply wait in obedience for God to provide said what he promised? Now, this account of Jacob and Esau, Jacob stealing the, the blessing, I think, again, it has those three purposes, similar to what we looked at last time. It teaches us on the origins of blessings and conflicts related to Israel and Edom. It teaches us about the foolishness of trying to obtain by fleshly means what God has already promised. And it teaches us again about the sure, sovereign faithfulness of God. What God says will come to pass. You can trust God. Or I would just summarize it all in this way. The point of this text The application, the take home, is that you will trust God and not turn to your own simple efforts to provide what you need. It's just like the situation where Abraham or Isaac, they felt like they needed to lie to protect themselves, but they didn't. We need to learn this lesson. Trust God. Do not turn to your own sinful efforts to provide what you need. Israel needed to learn this for sure as they were going into the promised land, but so do we. We need to learn it too. Now let's consider this and other applications a little bit more specifically with a few more questions. Step three of our method is always consider applications. So let's consider application a little bit together with this question. What are some situations in which Christians today are tempted to use sinful means in order to obtain God's promise? I'll give you one example, just to spur your thinking. Lying to obtain a needed job. You feel like, oh, you know, money's run out, savings run out, really need a job. Oh, I need them to accept me, so I'm going to misrepresent my work experience a little bit. Or I'll, I'll lie about how much I was making at my previous job because I really need this money. This is doing exactly what Jacob and Rebecca were doing. Sinning to obtain what God said he would already provide. Now, it may be that if you don't sin, you don't get that particular job. But God will still provide. He'll provide the perfect way and at the right time. But what's another example of this kind of concept? Christians being tempted to sin in order to provide what God promised. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, that's a good insight, Steve. I didn't think of that, but that's a great, I think that's a great parallel to what we're talking about. Trying to use gimmicks, trying to use fleshly means to get people into the church or to get people saved. I think we could extend that even more to talk about easy believism, watering down the gospel. It's just another example of this. Trying to obtain God's promise. God said that he would save people. Trying to obtain God's promise by sinful means or by means that go outside of his will. 
I think what I mentioned earlier about trying to see people sanctified, you use sinful means to accomplish that. I mean, sometimes we say to ourselves, I'm going to teach this person a lesson. I'm going to teach him that he can't treat me like this because I'm going to be harsh to him in return. So he's going to learn to be a good person. You're going to use sin to accomplish that? No, it's the same thing. It's not going to result in pleasing God. It's probably not going to result in that person actually becoming sanctified. You'll just make that person more angry. And you just create trouble for yourself. We could point to a lot of other things. I'll just mention a few others. Dating or marrying a non-Christian. This is a great temptation if you're single, you've been waiting a long time. Say, well, this person's interested in me, but he doesn't know the Lord. Well, maybe he will. And so you start to rationalize. But God is able to provide for you without you transgress what he said. Plagiarizing work, participating in a sinful activity to obtain friendship or popularity. Reacting sinfully to your spouse in order to get your spouse to change. These are all examples of the same concept we've been looking at today. God doesn't need your sin to accomplish his promise. He's actually called you to obedience, to trust him. Lay aside, just as Steve was saying, lay aside your own wisdom, your own craftiness, your own strength, and trust in the Lord. But of course, one of the things we do want to guard against is being too passive. So briefly, let's consider, what's the difference between being too passive and waiting on the Lord? Well, time's a little bit short, so I'll answer this myself. Waiting on the Lord does not mean passivity. It doesn't mean you just sit there and just wait for things to happen to you. What it does mean, though, is that you will not sin or adjust godly priorities to bring about something you need or want. You can be active. That's good. The Bible commends being active. It commends hard work. It commends different investments. It even commends the pursuit of godly desires. But if your pursuit becomes idolatrous, that is, when you will sin to get it, or if you will sin if you don't get it, then you're no longer trusting in God. You're no longer waiting on him. You can be active and still waiting on the Lord if you're not relying on sin or adjusting godly priorities to get what you need or to get what you want. And along these lines, beware of simply trusting in how circumstances are lining up or not lining up to tell you God's will. I mean, things sure lined up for Rebecca and Jacob, didn't they? I mean, I've got Esau's clothes. We overheard this conversation. I know how to make the food. But was that indicative of God's will? No, God had already, in his character and in different ways, had revealed what is the right way to act. And they were not going according to that. They were going, to, they were going according to the convenience of the opportunity before that. And we are not to do that. Sometimes things will line up, but they're not God's will. They actually go against his word. Circumstances are not a reliable indicator of God's will, but God's word is. So, asking you a little bit more personally now, this is just for you to consider yourself. Where in your life are you tempted to sinfully grasp for what God has already promised you if you will just wait to receive it in faith and obedience? We need to learn something from this account today. This is so that we would be changed, so we would be transformed. So we would not grasp like Jacob did but receive what God has already promised that he would get. Now, if you have questions about today's lesson or about something you heard, please feel free to email me. We're out of time for today, but we will resume again next week. Jacob's got the blessing, but now he's on the run. And next week, we're going to see what I was talking about a little bit earlier, where God is going to provide for Jacob, but he's going to provide in a way that Jacob is reminded, you're not really the one in control, Jacob. You need to learn to rely on me because there's a trickster who's just as tricky as Jacob, and that's Rebecca's brother, Laban. We'll talk about that more next time. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for just the extra insights of your people. Lord, I pray that they would continue to think about this. Lord, that your spirit would work in their hearts so that they would progress in sanctification, progress in faith. Lord, that they would... And that I would not turn to sin to bring about what you've promised. Lord, that we will wait on you, even if it's a long time. Not being too passive, but never turning to sin to bring about your will. Being active in obedience, being active in trust. 
pray that you would accomplish that in your people and bless them the rest of this day as they fellowship and as they worship and as they learn at Calvary. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. That worked out well. Sound system worked out well. I'll see you guys next week.